Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. All right, now someone that was going to make us smarter about the U.S. economy is Yelena Shulietova, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And, well, okay, you can. I, it's always great to have you, Yelena. You know, you, you're a little you. self deprecating. You're, you know, it's always you, been a pleasure, uh, yes. It, so uh, let's talk about well, GDP. Well, it sounds like you're not leaving, are you? Okay. Oh, no, all no, right, no. All right, good. Because, all right, tell me what happened. <laughs> GDP, 2.9% print estimate was for 2.5%. Big deal, not big deal. Oh, yeah. These numbers are very encouraging in a sense that uh, they do uh, highlight uh, that growth has rebounded in the second half of the year. So, in that respect, it's, it's very positive. But as always, you need to look at the details. And the details uh, to us seem to be a little bit less encouraging. Uh, although, um, you know, the bottom line from the report, let me just say that, is uh, that will uh, provide comfort for the Fed to raise rates in December. But uh, the underlying details might ne- not necessarily uh, mean that they will continue at a, a very rapid pace uh, in the next year. So they might have to continue only on a gradual pace next year. Did what Janet Yellen, just excuse me, did Janet Yellen send you an email with that in it? I mean, that sounds pretty... <laughs> well, earlier this year, right, uh, we were talking 25 about... 25 basis points December. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Well, let's let's dig into some of those details that are giving people mm-hmm. comfort that the Fed will move, but not too quickly. What are you looking at? So uh, the details of the report showed uh, considerable deceleration in consumer spending, which could be discouraging, could be encouraging. So it is discouraging because this is the the biggest part of the economy, and that is slowing down considerably. On the other hand, that means less dependence on consumer spending alone and uh, some acceleration in other sectors of the economy. So diversification is always good, right? So, but, uh, you know, if you look at the details, uh, for example, you see that the inventories added 61 basis points to growth uh, in the third quarter, and uh, net exports added 83 basis points. So together, they account for half of uh, that growth rate that we saw in the third quarter. But isn't that good? Don't we want to be exporting more? And don't we want to... These numbers could be uh, very volatile, and uh, you really need to see several quarters of growth to um, actually to see this is a sustainable kind of growth in these sectors. Exports, net exports, could be distorted by the Hengen, um shipping company bank- bankruptcy. So the could be something going on there, and it might not be sustainable. Inventories is another wild card. Uh, we uh, were talking about considerable uh, pickup in stockpiles, and uh, you know, this seems to be uh, not happening. That uh, inventories are going to contribute. Uh, quite a lot going forward. So to me, it seems unsustainable. So, But overall, for the uh, year the, as a whole, uh, GDP needs to grow only by 1.9% in the fourth quarter to reach the Fed target of uh, 1.8% for, for the year as a whole. So that seems to be attainable. Yelena, we got new home sales this week. We got durable goods orders, jobless claims. Now we got the GDP print. Uh, is this an up or down week? 
for the for the land of the economy. So, so let you, you me think of so it's always a mix. I know. Always a mix. But are we, uh, can we say that everything's going along? Everything the way it is, is going along the way on. Okay. Um, no nuance. Like chugging, just, yeah, just chugging nothing, along nothing just huge. fine. Okay. Yes. And next week uh, we're gonna get the uh, payrolls report. Correct. That'll uh-huh. be on Friday. Yes. Uh, big deal? Not a big deal? Do we care? Now? As long as the pace is within the kind of the same kind of range, it okay. it doesn't need to accelerate from here. That's going to be fine. You know, 150 is still fine. And you think that the market has already baked in 25 basis points, that bonds, for example? I was surprised. I was talking with Lisa earlier today when we got the 2.9% GDP report. I was surprised that the bond market did not sell off. We were talking about the same thing on the desk, actually, earlier this morning. Um, Well, as long as the probability on the WIRP, right, uh, Right. stays above 70%, I think it's So 25 in December. Yes. but I do think, I mean, we got the University of Michigan survey of uh, consumer confidence and inflation expectations. Again, we're back at that new low. Yes, but I I tr- tend to be very skeptical of the survey data ahead of the election, okay? So any survey data ahead of the election, you might want to wait until Why after. is that? Sentiment could be very much distorted. Um, yeah, listen in, to the rhetoric that we're hearing, Pam. I mean, exactly. That's, so yes. it's it's really like it happened before. Like the Michigan survey was distorted uh, during the uh, debt ceiling crisis uh, back in 2011, and so what? Nothing happened to consumer spending. So you have to be very careful with sentiment numbers, both consumer and, and uh, company sentiment. Yelena Shulyatieva, thank you so much for being with us, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Intelligence, breaking down the GDP report and why uh, the bond market just doesn't seem to be responding right now. Uh, 10-year U.S. Treasury is pretty much flat at 1.85%. This is Bloomberg. All right, let's solve the quandary of oil and the price of oil. Joining us is our expert, yes, Vincent Piazza. He is the senior U.S. oil and gas analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Always a pleasure to see you. Thank you. Uh, I was looking at Exxon today. Mm -hmm. Stock is down more than 1%. I was looking at Chevron. Stock is up more than 3%. What's going on between these two companies? So I think the broad narrative today is that output growth continues to be a challenge for both. Um, And today, it seems output growth uh, is more of a challenge for Exxon relative to Chevron. But the broader takeaway, the broader narrative is output growth continues to be a challenge. The CapEx decline, so the spending decline that we've seen since the price decline from a couple years ago is impacting the ability for resource capture. So lower output, yes, spending is down. But the the ability to book the resource uh, is challenging as well. The tailwind that refining was during the price decline has now become a headwind. So the outsized gains, the over-earning from the refining business, the downstream business, the chemical business, now becomes more of a tailwind for both entities. Now... Exxon did say that because of these lower prices, uh, it may have to take a look at uh, impairing some of these reserves in North America to the tune of roughly 18 or 20 percent, and that is a headwind for them. Uh, For Chevron, um, 
sentiment coming into the quarter uh, was uh, somewhat murky. Uh, they came out with uh, a modest uh, uh, level of output um, year over year, and they did uh, provide guidance uh, for December output, so for 4Q output, slightly higher relative to uh, 3Q. Uh, so um, modestly more positive for Chevron, less, less so uh, for Exxon. But remember what these businesses are, right? They are integrated networks. Uh, so they are more defensive. They are lower beta equities because of this less volatile earnings and cash flow stream. So during a price uh, recovery, you want leverage to the upstream, the more direct exposure to the price recovery and not these integrated platforms where the downstream, the chemicals and refining business tends to offset any benefit from a higher price in the upstream piece. So wait, I, I want to go back to Chevron. I mean, they've posted their first profit uh, in a year and seem to be more upbeat and their shares are up almost 20% versus 14% uh, or less than that, 13% gain uh, year to date for Exxon. What's Chevron doing to gain investors' confidence more than at least Exxon? Well, I think it's, it's relative sentiment as well. Right, so coming into the year, better sentiment for Exxon relative to Chevron, and Chevron is outperforming that lower sentiment. Right, so under promise, over deliver in a sense. And for Chevron this quarter, you had some issues with uh, uh, some downtime and uh, Nigeria unrest, so that uh, hurt volume as well. Um, for Exxon, the one, uh, the one item this quarter that probably has longer near-term effects is this issue of the reserve bookings and any potential impairments um, come the close of the year. Okay, so taking a bigger step back, Exxon, Chevron, they both delivered their earnings. Uh, did they give a better sense of what they expect as far as oil prices in the year ahead? Well, I think, it, like everyone else, uh, they are perplexed. It's, it's a challenging environment out there. Uh, the, op the potential OPEC cuts um, also may impact them because they are partners as well. And how much of that cut they would have to take on is uncertain. Uh, Exxon said that on their call t t today. So um, there is as much uncertainty um, that they see as the, the, the upstream player here in the U.S. Um, and so we are in the midst of a younger recovery. Um, there are still challenges ahead. Um, we're probably oversupplied by roughly a million barrels. Um, we need to see that sustainable demand growth to sort of truncate those imbalances, but that remains to be seen. OPEC, we need to get some clarity as to what type of agreement there really is, if there is an agreement, um, and that'll give us some additional clarity, but that remains a very big unknown, and that'll be the driver uh, for 2017. That'll forge any type of price recovery from, from, the, from this point. Vincent Piazza, uh, you are not only just an expert in terms of the macro oil stuff, but in terms of balance sheet and understanding how companies work. Could we just talk for about, about a moment for free cash flow mm -hmm. from these? Because these are dividend payers. Right, exactly. Okay? And exactly. And, you know, we've been through this with BP, with that terrible thing in the Gulf of Mexico, the Wakanda. Well, I mean, when you monkey with the, when you change, rather, the, the dividend, mm -hmm. right? That's going to change your investor base. Right. And that's a very good point. We're talking about shareholder engagement. So shareholder engage engagement is through the dividend and is also through share repurchases. 
okay? And you fund those Sherry purchases and that dividend through your free cash flow, and it's sometimes you borrow for it as well. Now, the dividend yield for Chevron and Exxon is 3 and 4%. The average dividend yield uh, for an S&P company is around somewhere around 2%. You're owning it for that capital repatriation. Um, and for Exxon, they'll throw off somewhere around four or five billion of free cash flow this year. Um, Chevron uh, will still be in a negative cash flow, so they're still they they are borrowing uh, to pay that dividend. Um, but in general, that remains the key, that shareholder engagement, because these are lower beta, less volatile investments relative to the capital appreciation you would see from an upstream player. So real quick, I want to go back to the idea that Exxon may have to write its reserves off by up to 20%. Why haven't they done so yet? Well, you do that throughout the you, you do that from year to year once you once you have a full 12 year period and you're able to take the average of those individual 12 months to make that final cut uh, for the for, for the for, for that fiscal year period. So in other words, there could be a lot of realized losses across the industry. As well, we've seen this last year as well for the upstream uh, players. Um, so this is not a new phenomenon. I think it's the size that has some um, concern. Um, and it probably has led to some of the under underperformance relative to Chevron today. Thank you so much. You got it. Vincent Piazza, senior U.S. oil and gas analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, breaking down the, the tale of two oil companies, of Exxon, uh, which is uh, losing value, versus Chevron, which is gaining in oil, uh, certainly being one of the driving factors, Pim, behind expectations of inflation going forward. Uh, oil sort of hovering around $49 a barrel, still in that 52 to $45 a barrel range. I don't know what it will take for us to break out of this. Perhaps Vincent Piazza knows in his uh, in his seat. Uh, I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm here with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. I would like to learn more about what to do with money, particularly seventy-two billion dollars which is how much Wilmington Trust uh, oversees. And Tony Roth, Chief, Chief, Chief Investment Officer at Wilmington Trust, is responsible with coming up with a strategy. So, Tony, I want to start with cash. We're hearing a lot about people who are uh, hoarding larger stockpiles of cash to capitalize on uh, the market when it turns. Is that what you're doing? No, we, we think that the market is already turning, Lisa. Um, by the way, thanks for having me today to you and Tim. Um, it's great to speak with you. We think the market is actually already in the process of turning, and we think that that cash is better um, put to work uh, today. Unless it's earmarked for very short-term purposes, uh, we can see that um, with the, we look at uh, the global economy, looking at oil stability, inflation, stronger dollar, ch a change in the commodity super cycle, um, there's a lot of opportunity in the market right now. We're pretty constructive, so where, we'd rather see that cash uh, put to work. Where are you putting it to work right now? Well, we like emerging markets. Um, so I mentioned the commodity super cycle. And if you look at um, measures like the CRB uh, raw industrials index, for example, which moves very closely with emerging markets, um, it's been moving upwards um, since about February. And we think the emerging markets are going to continue to see um, an upward trend. Um, credit and oil, equity, credit and equity, or just uh, where, yep. where, how how exactly are you going about that? Yeah, yeah, credit and equity. So um, China, for example, has been a real underperformer, and when you think about the two drawdowns that we had in the market over the last 15 months, 
um, August of 2015 and then uh, uh, January, February this year, right, really triggered by China. And we think that China has really gotten ahead of its problems in terms of the credit bubble and in terms of its management of its currency. So there's a good opportunity, I think, in the Chinese equity market right now um, and more broadly. Um, uh, particularly with respect to the consum- commodity consumers, which haven't had as big a rally as the um, commodity producers like Russia and Brazil, etc. Tony, I'm wondering if you feel that it's a small contradiction that Chinese companies are venturing outside of China to acquire assets. They seem to want to buy almost everything that is not nailed down. Mm-hmm. And particularly, you had the uh, the purchase, I believe, of Anbang Insurance, uh, the Waldorf Astoria uh, Hotel Group, uh, and then um, most recently, uh, you've had uh, you know Chinese investment in the United States in a variety of industries. You had the, well, the Genworth Financial deal this week. Absolutely. Listen, China has a lot of capital. So why would that be wanting to go out of the country if it's such a good deal to have it in the country? Well, one of the things to remember is that the Chinese currency is clearly on a trajectory of depreciation. So if you're a Chinese company, right, and you can acquire skills and capabilities um, that you can mirror inside China by buying foreign companies, um, and you can hedge your currency exposure and diversify your revenue streams, that can make a lot of sense. From the perspective of a U.S.-based investor that's looking for appreciation, certainly um, to the extent we have the ability to hedge currency exposure in China um, is probably how we would invest in today's market. Going back to uh, the idea of energy prices and where they are currently, KKR uh, credit co-head Nat Zika spoke with uh, Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker yesterday and basically said that KKR is selling a lot of its uh, distressed debt holdings and a lot of its uh, energy-related holdings to lock in gains uh, so far. Why are they wrong? Well, if we look at what's happening, the U.S. is now the swing energy producer in the world, right? So number one, we see a trajectory where we're still um, dropping in terms of U.S. production. So production is down about 11.5% from the peak in 2015. And while we've seen a little bit of a rebound in rig counts, we're still massively down, around 75% down from the peak. And there's a big lag effect. So when we see that the fact that U.S. as a swing producer is still dropping from a production standpoint, and on top of that, we look at the fact that Aramco, right, the big Saudi um, state energy enterprise, oil enterprise, is going to have an IPO sometime in the next 12 to 18 months. And they have a very strong incentive of keeping the oil price upward as well. Um, Those are all fairly strong um, supports for the oil price. On top of that, look at the GDP number today, right, 2.9%. So we see not just in the emerging markets, but even in the U.S., we see strengthening global, global activity, which is going to be further aided and abetted by what I call a step back from monetary insanity, right? So we've had you know, a broad practice of monetary insanity across the globe. I think that um, central banks are going to start to step back from that in the next 12 months much more quickly than we've anticipated, and that's going to help stabilize the environment as well. Is that going to be bullish for commodity stocks? And if so, do you want to buy commodity stocks that do business around the world, like Freeport MacMoran, or do you want to focus on domestic players? I do think that um, it's going to be helpful for commodities. I do think that we've turned the, the cycle on commodities. Um, it's going to be a slow process. Um, we're not going to see an aggressive growth trajectory for commodities. But I do think that um, materials, for example, in the U.S. Um, has really not done well. 
recently, and I think that there's a um, mean reversion opportunity for commodities, uh, domestic commodity stocks. Um, so I think that either way to play it is actually going to be um, whether it be domestic companies or uh, emerging market companies, et cetera, or foreign producers. I think they're both going to do fairly well over the next two to three years. And again, at Wilmington Trust, we're long-term investors, so we're not looking to trade, if you will, um, on the most recent data point, but we're really looking for the, tr- the the trend, and we do see this trend in the commodity space. So, Tony, uh, switching asset classes, taking a look at bonds, if you think mm-hmm. that stocks are going to do well uh, broadly, is your sense that uh, developed market government bonds are going to do badly? And if so, how badly? We think they'll do badly on a relative basis. So if you think about where to look for income, right, we think the dividend in today's environment, right, which is where bonds are still have significantly negative real yields. And so while we're not that concerned about the credit side of the bond market, we are very concerned about the rate side. And so we would prefer to pick up income um, and MLPs, dividends. Um, to some degree, the municipal bond market, although we stay a little bit underweight there um, today um, relative to our strategic asset allocation. But um, we would stay away from um, you know any kind of duration over five years in today's environment. We don't expect to see a complete normalization of the rate environment in the next year or two, right? We think that we're going to see clearly a hike now in December. I think that's pretty much consensus, um, but also two hikes next year. Um, that'll leave us around um, 150 or so on the policy rate, um, and it'll leave room for a little bit more rate, rate hiking, but we're not going to end up at a, at a policy rate of 3% or so anytime soon. So we're, we don't see a huge shift um, in the rate environment um, that's going to crush bonds, but we don't think that they're particularly attractive with durations over five years. Tony Roth, thank you. Chief Investment Officer, Wilmington Trust, managing $72 billion. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg. Well, it's not hard to imagine what happens when you're in a business that is competing on price and is also looking at record inventory in some cases. I want to bring in Mike Jackson. He is the chief executive of AutoNation. He joins us now. Mike Jackson, thanks very much for being with us. My pleasure. Good morning. All right. So, I, you know, if, if I had if I had a, a way to console you, I would because, uh, you know, you've been through a little bit of a, a trial by fire here. The stock is down, uh, I believe, about three and a half percent today. It's down 25 percent so far this year. Uh, you're in a tough business and you're trying to find new ways to invigorate the automobile uh, retail business. You're opening standalone used car outlets. Tell me what's going on with the business and how you're surviving. Well, uh, we understand that the new vehicle business is cyclical uh, in one of three phases, growth, plateau, and decline. Years ago, we said we wanted to have a way uh, to grow uh, when this marketplace plateaus. So we launched the AutoNation brand from coast to coast. It's been very well accepted uh, and trusted by consumers. And we launched AutoNation Express, our digital capability, from which we get 30% of our business today. So now we're expanding dramatically into the pre-owned and uh, customer care business, building free center, uh, uh, freestanding service and sales centers, uh, within our markets, which will be uh, under the brand AutoNation. And in order to have a compelling 
value story and a good experience for our customers in those centers. Uh, they will all be one-priced on the pre-owned vehicles, and we will launch AutoNation parts and accessories in these centers and also offer those parts and accessories in our franchise business. So as I look at it now, we're the largest retailer of premium luxury vehicles in the U.S. with almost 100 premium luxury franchises, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Porsche, across America. We have a very large franchise volume business, and now we will have freestanding pre-owned sales and service centers across our footprint. You know, we were talking to Bob Shanks yesterday, uh, CFO of Ford, and he was talking about how the uh, cycle is maturing. Um, from your perspective, you talk about plateauing in the auto industry. What's the risk and how can you measure it of a potential significant downturn uh, in auto values and in appetite for new, for new vehicles? So uh, once the industry enters the plateau phase, it can run many years there. We've gone five, six years uh, in plateau. And if I look at the availability of credit and the cost of money and the price of gasoline, we are in an, an, an extended period uh, of plateau. But ultimately, a decline will come, but that would take much higher rates or restriction of credit compared to what we have today. So, But even in plateau, it's a challenge to us as a company to have the ambition to still grow. And hence, we've built a brand and hence, we've built this digital capability that we're now extending a new business field. So we have the opportunity to continue to grow. Uh, just quickly, uh, Mike, the uh, as, as Lisa was saying, having to do with the Ford uh, CFO, uh, any area of the country uh, that is uh, better or worse, any particular product that's better or worse, give you about uh, 15 seconds. Well, we can go uh, right to what's the most difficult part of the country, and that would be uh, the energy markets, whether it's Colorado or Texas or up into Oklahoma. Uh, while it's stabilized, it's stabilized at a lower level, and um, those are the most difficult markets. Uh, the two coasts are doing fine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.